Father, we pray that that would not just be our song, but our very heart as we would study your word this morning. Father, that you would give us the same heart as Paul, that we would find our anchor, that we would find our cornerstone on Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. Lord, and, the, and what that means is the gift of grace that we've received, not by works, so that we had nothing to boast in except that Jesus is our Lord, so that we would be those who would confess boldly and loudly with our, our, our words and our lives that Jesus is our Lord. And so we pray that that would be true, Lord, in, in our lives, in our song, and, and now as we study your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, that is such a great song because there's storms going on all around us, isn't there? And the gospel, as we're going to see, is God's answer to the storm that people live in continually. And I just want to challenge you this morning as we begin the book of Romans, if someone were to come up and ask you, uh, my life is a wreck. I don't know what to do. Could you explain to them the gospel in its fullness? Rather than tell them, go talk to the pastor. Or come to church. And that's important, but could you explain the gospel as we read in Ephesians chapter 2? Take them all the way from spiritual death to spiritual life and the process it takes to get there. Hopefully, by the time we're through the book of Romans, every one of us will be so in tune to the gospel that it'll be, we could give it in two minutes, five minutes, half hour. It wouldn't matter, but we would actually be able to define the gospel for someone so that they could actually accept or reject it in its fullness rather than just hearing you go, praise the Lord. And we call that a witness. Well, that is a witness to a certain extent, but that's not a full witness. We need to explain to people the gospel. So this morning, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, and let's begin our time in God's Word by reading verses 1 through 7. This is the introduction. Pastor Craig admirably did the uh, overall view of the book of Romans last week and uh, preparing our hearts for the verse-by-verse -verse study, and now we're going to begin it. Paul says, Paul, <laughs> he introduces himself. Uh, he's the writer of the book of Romans. We won't go into a great deal of detail on that, but uh, he's a bondservant. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, for the glory of God, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved in Rome, of Rome, Beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Incredible amount of doctrine, incredible amount of words in those few sentences. 
Now, I've entitled these introductory verses, Keeping the Main Thing the Main Thing. Because from the very beginning, Paul sets the tone and theme of the entire book of Romans, that being the gospel. That's what he wants to get across, is the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. You might call these seven verses the mini book of Romans. Because in these seven verses, he basically includes the, uh, summarizes the entire book and what it's going to be about. And for 11 chapters, Paul will spell out in intimate detail the good news that is offered to all men. That there is redemption and forgiveness of sins, that there is justification by faith. Uh, Many have said the whole book of Romans is about justification by faith, that the man can be brought back into a proper relationship with God through the redemption and justification and forgiveness offered to them in his Son. John 3.16 says it admirably when it says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten Son that whoever should believe in him should not what? Perish but have everlasting life. That's the message of Romans. Which brings up the other main thing. Man apart from Christ is condemned before God. That's the universal bad news that afflicts our fallen world just as the eternal good news is that in Christ you can have redemption. You can come to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me, Christ said. The eternal bad news is that if you reject that offer, if you reject that free gift, you are condemned to an eternity of separation from God or hell. That's the other main thing. The main thing is man is lost. The other main thing is that in Christ, man can be redeemed and saved and forgiven his sin. You know, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.9, For both Jew and Greek are all under sin. Verse 10, There is none righteous, not even one. None who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, all are useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one, because... By the works of the law, it says no flesh will be justified in God's sight in verse 20. You know, man devises his own little things of how he measures his righteousness before God. Well, I did this, this, and this, and this. And if you ask them, they'll tell you. I remember standing at the door of a guy in Provo who was head of a ward there, and he proceeded to talk to us for a half hour how good a person he was. And it was continually, no, you're not. You're a condemned sinner. You need to receive the forgiveness that's in Christ. You need to receive it as a free gift, not as something you have earned, which you obviously think you have. That's happened more often than not. That's the universal bad news. The wages of sin is death. All men are condemned before the judgment seat of God, hopelessly lost. I love when Paul makes the statement that we do not die as those who have no hope. I don't know how people get up in the morning in our world today. I really don't. Looking at it, the uncertainty, the craziness, all the crazy thinking that's going on, I don't even know how they get out of bed in the morning without Christ. We live as we have hope, and we die in hope. 
What a wonderful realization. So that's the bad news. Man's condemned. The good news is that in Christ he can be forgiven. He can be redeemed. You see, the good news is not health, wealth, and prosperity, as so many are preaching today. The good news is not that Jesus will fix all your problems. I don't know about you, I know Jesus and I've got tons of problems. <laughs> you know, some brought on by myself, some brought on by others. But the good news is not that Jesus will help you live your best life now. But the good news is that there is eternal life and forgiveness for a condemned sinner like you and me. We need to keep the main thing the main thing, and Paul accomplishes that in the book of Romans. He keeps the focus on the gospel, the good news. And he also focuses on the other main thing, that man is condemned and the gospel is such great news. If you understood what it meant to go to hell, you would go bonkers over what it means to go to heaven. It's like a person on death row getting a pardon by the president and being set free. It was like Barabbas on the day of Christ's crucifixion. He was set free even though he's a murderer and an insurrectionist. That's us. Now, as we look at these first seven verses, I want you to see the main messenger, Paul, in verses 1 and 2, the main man, Jesus Christ, in verses 3 and 4, and then I want you to see the main message, the gospel, in verses 5 through 7. So, to begin with, let's look at the main messenger, Paul, in verses 1 and 2. Paul just begins by saying, Paul, uh, he used to be Saul, as Craig pointed out last week, he used to be a murderous individual, uh, very unapproachable by other Christians. Uh, Christ finally knocked him down on the road to Damascus, blinded him, and he said, Lord, who is it that's talking to me? He says, well, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, and that started his eternal life. That's a great way to start for a guy like Paul. Nobody human could have taken on him. He says, a bondservant of Jesus, Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice he grounds everything in the Word of God, and that's, that's a marvelous thing. We'll look at that in a moment. But Now, Paul was unique in the spread of the gospel in that, in that first century church, and the fact that he was is beyond questioning. Amazing man. You know, people attack the Paul and the epistles and all these things because they try to you know, they, they say you're a Pauline Christian and all that kind of stuff. Well, for good reason, because Paul had a great ministry in that early church, and he was called to a great ministry, and he fulfilled a great ministry. He went on three missionary journeys, possibly four, taking the gospel to the then-known world, instrumental in founding and establishing churches in Asia, Syria, Cappadocia, uh, Phrygia, Thrace, uh, Macedonia, Corinth, and a host of other places. He was cho a chosen instrument called to that very purpose. I don't know if any other man ever born could accomplish that purpose that Paul called because of what he suffered for the sake of the name. Listen to his calling. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Turn back, flip back a, a book to Acts chapter 9. I'd like to hear the rustle of pages. 
And Paul's on his way to incarcerate and put to death Christians on his way to Damascus. And, uh, and Jesus strikes him down on the road. And in verse 5, he says, uh, Who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. No, no words minced here. But get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And to get up and enter the city, he needed to be led because he was blind at the moment. And then Jesus talks to Ananias, and he says, uh, I'm bringing uh, Saul to you. And Ananias freaks out because he knows what a murderous individual Paul is, Saul is. And Ananias says down in verse 13, he says, But Lord, I uh, have heard about, for many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. And that's an imperative command. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Then he adds this to his calling. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Very similar to Peter's calling in John chapter 21 where Peter is talking to the Lord and Peter just the Lord says to Peter, you know, uh, when you're young, you used to do whatever you wanted, but when you're old, you're going to stretch forth your hands and you're going to go where you don't want to go, signifying what manner of death. You're going to die for me. And then he just said, follow me. And then Peter looks around and goes, well, what about John? And uh, Jesus says, if I want him to live forever, what's that to you? You follow me. Very similar. And uh, Paul did. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11 about his calling. And he's compared himself, I think, to the false teachers in Corinth. And, and he says uh, in 2 Corinthians 11:21, he says, To my shame I must say that we have been weak by comparison compared to the false teachers. He says, But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? He's obviously talking about the Judaizers who would go in behind him and, and say, no, 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 Jesus isn't enough. You need Jesus plus Moses plus circumcision plus whatever else they come up with. And uh, he says, uh, but I'm equal to them. The, are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. <laughs> I like that. I'm more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods, which is even worse. Once I was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Uh, he says, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. You'd think Paul lived a dangerous life, right? I mean, where else could he have been when he wouldn't have been in danger? 
Then he says, uh, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. I think Paul suffered for the name of Christ, didn't he? Then he makes this statement, which blows my mind. He says, apart from such external things, <laughs> there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. That's why he wrote the epistles. That's why he went on his missionary journeys, oftentimes to strengthen the brethren and, and keep them on track and teach them and mature them so that they could go out and be sent ones themselves. And, and he says, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. That's humility before God. You know, humility is really, it's not a frame of mind. It's a willingness to do what God says, to humble yourself before God and to do his will. It's not slinking around in the shadows and pretending to be humble uh, when you're really angry and bitter towards everybody else, but it's being willing to do the will of God and what he says. You see, Paul was true to his calling. No sacrifice was too great to get the good news of the gospel to those who so desperately needed it. And that was everybody. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the book of Romans tells us. And it's the same with our world, isn't it? You know, man sees himself as more evolved, more technologically advanced, more philosophical, and without God he thinks that he's some kind of spiritual person as he pursues himself. He pursues the God within, or whatever he wants to call it. Uh, you know, you always got to love yourself and, and accept yourself and be your own man and do your own thing and, and be this rugged, wonderful individual and be your own woman, be your own whatever. Okay, whatever your God is. We think we're highly evolved. But the truth of the matter is, man is just as sinful and lost today as he's always been. Jesus made a profound statement in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if the light that is in you is darkness, then how great is the darkness? Think of the French Revolution, the Age of Enlightenment. This is the worst time, one of the worst times in the history of mankind. People were guillotined and killed just because they had a little more money or a little more power than other people, and uh, the lower-ups wanted to get rid of the upper-ups and, and so on and so forth, level the playing field, and we'll all be right. Well, that doesn't deal with anything. That does not deal with the problem. The problem is man's sinfulness and man's sinful nature. Deal with that, you can get rid of the problems. Don't deal with that, and the problems just take a different form, and they morph into something uglier than even you can imagine. We're seeing that in our world today, aren't we? We're seeing that in our own country. And we'll be talking about that at the end of Romans chapter 1 and, and how you know, greater sin produces greater sin and judgment on that sin produces even greater, uglier sin. Man's got a problem and it needs to be dealt with. Man sees himself as evolved, but he's just as sinful or worse sinful than ever. But that's our world. 
But beloved, I just want to ask you the question this morning. Like Paul, do you see yourself as sent by God into that world to spread the gospel, to tell people about the good news? Because this world's just bad news. I mean, turn on the news. All you get is this bad news. Very seldom do you ever get a program where it says, yeah, and this wonderful thing happened, and this wonderful thing happened, and this wonderful thing happened today, and aren't you excited and, and just blessed off, you know, your socks just blessed off? It's always, well, there was like this amount of people were killed, and some guy went in and blew away all the people in the restaurant, and, and this and that, and so-and-so left so-and-so, and, and you know, it was, it's bad news. It's just bad news. And I'm not trying to be negative, although I am a little bit. But do we see ourselves as Paul sent into that kind of world as proclaimers of the good news? I know Pablo loves this. Uh, do we see ourselves as bondservants of Christ, as doulos, as slaves? As, that's what the word doulos means, slaves, as those who are in bonds in the service of Christ in this world. Remember Jesus said, first among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. First among you shall be your slave, your doulos. We want to be used by God. We need to be in bonds to Christ. Do we see ourselves as called by Christ as those who are in this world sent to spread the good news? That's the word apostolos. Apostolos means sent ones. Paul was divinely called and sent for a particular purpose. He was a chosen instrument. But in a sense, so are we. I wouldn't call myself an apostle, but I would say that I am sent with the same intention, the same purpose as Paul was to spread the gospel, to, to teach the word of God, to encourage people, to lead people to Christ. We see ourselves that way. Now, apostleship was unique in that early church in that the twelve and Paul were commissioned by Christ to their calling and each had witnessed the resurrected Christ. Paul on the road to Damascus saw him. But we too are sent ones. We too are in this world to witness to the finished work of Christ on the cross as he bore the wrath and judgment of God the Father on sin and sinners. He was buried and on the third day he rose victorious over sin and death that he might offer to all sinners the free gift of eternal life. That's the gospel, as verse 1 says. Can you define that for someone? What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is you're a sinner. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not spiritually alive. You're a walking dead man or woman or child or whatever. Christ died for your sins because the wages of sin is death. He was killed. He bore the wrath of the Father. That's an important point to make. He bore the path of the wrath of the Father in your place. Three days later, he rose from the dead just as he said he would. Just as he declared. We'll see that in a moment. Do we see ourselves that like Paul, we are set apart by God in this world to spread the gospel? You know, I think of the Great Commission. You know, we can say, well, that was to the apostles. And it was. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the main verb of all nations. Baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then Jesus adds this, and he says, 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That means the commission has come down from them to us. It's not something we can go, oh, that was for them, and they did a good job, and hallelujah, now I can, you know, pursue health, wealth, and prosperity. That same commission was to us. You know, we need to, in our own minds and hearts, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And the gospel is the main thing. You know, all the other stuff is great. You know, I want God to bless me. I want his blessing on my life. I want to read the word. I want to pray. I want to fellowship. I want to uh, worship. But I also need to realize that I'm called into this world to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, uh, the simple fact is, if God wanted to give me a perfect, cushy life, he'd just kill me and take me to heaven. But he leaves me in this world with the torturous reality that I'm here for a purpose, and I need to carry out that purpose, whether it be in my family, whether it be uh, in the church, whether it be out in the world. I need to take every opportunity I can to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the point. Heavens can wait. You know, we wish it all would be here, but it's going to wait until the Lord wants it to happen, uh, either by taking you through life or whether the rapture or whether the second coming, whatever it might be. But until then, we're commissioned. We're like Paul in a sense. We are sent ones into this world to spread the gospel. Now, verse 2 transitions us to our second point, and it it connects the main message, Paul, messenger, Paul, with the main man of the message, Jesus Christ. And I love this. He says, back in Romans chapter 1, he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, speaking of the gospel. And what was the gospel about? Well, it's concerning his son, who is born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And notice, first of all, the gospel originated with God. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the promise of the Redeemer that he would come to the seed of the woman, uh, alluding to the virgin birth. And then the Messiah, the Deliverer, was prophesied throughout the Old Testament to come through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David, of born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. Isaiah 53 spells out the sin-bearing and resurrection as do other Old Testament passages. There are some two to 300 prophecies concerning the person and work of Christ, both in the Old and New Testament. It's amazing the amount of prophecies concerning his person. The gospel originated with God and his divine promises came through his prophets and are written down in his holy scriptures. And that's important. Paul talks about the holy scriptures. He's referring to the Old Testament here. He's saying it wasn't the idea of man that there would be a deliverer. It's not man's idea. This came from God. It originated with God and 
And it's not in the Mishnah, and it's not in the Torah. Uh, it is in the Torah, but uh, it's not in the, the Talmud and all these different commentaries of man. This is not a man thing that was devised so people could be, uh, feel good about themselves or think they're saved. This is divinely from God. The, go the gospel has been God's plan for man from the very beginning, from actually before time began, as we're going to see. The gospel is not the invention of man. It's not even just a New Testament concept, but it has been God's plan from before time began. And since our God is omniscient and omnipotent, He has brought it to pass. That's a powerful thing to think about. God knows all. He knows the end from the beginning. And He has the power to bring it about. His Son as prophesied, came through the house of David. Both Mary, the vessel privileged to carry the divine Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, his legal father, were both descendants of David. Both of them, through the line of David. Scripture refers to Jesus Christ as the greater son of David. And so he is. Not only the greater son of David, but also his Lord, but Verse 4 tells us he is the Son of God declared to be so with power by his power over life and death. You know, I love John 10.10 10 for a lot of reasons, but one of the statements he makes in there is he's talking about his sheep knowing his voice and, and being the good shepherd is that he says, I lay my life down for the sheep and I take it up again. He has the power to lay it down. He has the power to take it up. We have the power to lay it down, but not to take it up. All we can do is look forward to death. Christ could see death in the face and conquer it. Christ's resurrection, except for possibly the original creation, was the most powerful demonstration of the power of God in the history of the world. That's just my own personal opinion and I would say most likely true. Christ created the world, John 1.1 1, 1 tells us. Uh, Colossians 1.15-17 said, All things came into being through Him and for Him. And He redeemed fallen man by conquering sin and death in what you might call a new recreation. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation, a new creature. We're saved, Titus 3 tells us, by the washing of regeneration. That's bringing the dead to life and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What a powerful testimony. That's declaring yourself with power. That's having power that we can't even fathom. And as I've said oftentimes before, uh, anyone who can conquer sin and death has my vote for being the Savior of mankind. I'll put my vote there anytime. Nobody else has conquered sin or death. In fact, we struggle with sin, you and I, even though Christ has bore our sin, we struggle with it every day their attitudes, actions, words, all kinds of things. 
But Christ had none of that. He was sinless, and he conquered your sin and mine. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew for a moment. I want to remind you of something we kept emphasizing as we were preaching through Matthew a year or so ago. And uh, Remember, Peter makes that great confession. He says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, at that point, thinks it's time to start telling them some deeper things. And in verse 21, from that time, Matthew 17, 21. He says, from that time Jesus began to show, and the word means to make known, to prove to them, to um, declare to them, I guess you could say. He began to declare to the disciples, his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Then it ends with, and be raised up on the third day. That was his declaration. Actually, it's 16, 21, and 22. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, then in 17, 22, he says, And while they are gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This is basically all the disciples are hearing at this point. They're going to kill him. Uh, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, they don't understand the resurrection at all because it's so powerful. Who's going to raise Jesus? Because even though he has raised Lazarus and he has done mighty miracles, he's the one that's done it. If he gets killed, who's going to do it for him? And they were deeply grieved. Then in chapter 20, verse 18, 17, he says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and scribes' hands, and they will condemn him to death, and he will, they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. It's exactly what happened. And on the third day, he will be raised that's quite a declaration. That's an amazing declaration. And, you know, he was teaching that over and over and over again. We just have these three instances. I would imagine he taught them that every day after Peter's proclamation. And he was trying to get it in their thick skulls that the resurrection is going to be one of the most powerful things that will ever happen in the history of the world. So understand it. Of course they didn't. But at the end of the Gospel of Matthew... We read this, chapter 28. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. That's quite an entrance, huh? Angel descends, causes this great earthquake, rolls away the stone, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. What? 
just as he said, or just as he declared to you, it happened. Come see the place where he's lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Maybe you'll get it this time. Maybe you'll understand it. You see, the gospel is about the main man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how God would become flesh, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Isaiah 7, 14, uh, Philippians chapter 2, throughout the gospels, throughout the Old Testament, and how he would suffer and die for the sins of the world, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, Psalms 22, and, and the gospels again, as Jesus declares what's going to happen, and, and how he would raise he would suffer and die for the sins of the world and how he would rise from the dead victorious over sin and death on the third day, thereby declaring himself to be the Son of God with power. Don't miss that. With power. The power that was demonstrated there is just beyond our reckoning. Amazing power demonstrated both in the creation and the resurrection and the creation of the flesh as he takes our stone-cold hearts and regenerates them. That's at the heart of the gospel. Thereby accomplishing all the spirit of holiness had preordained by his birth, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of power. The main man, Jesus Christ, accomplished all that was necessary for our redemption and forgiveness of sins as the Father transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. There you almost see a, a special forces going in and snatching somebody from the lion's mouth and taking them out, and, and that's what God did for us. He regenerated our heart. He brought us to life, and as we woke up from spiritual death, he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So we've seen the main messenger Paul. We've seen the main man, Jesus Christ, come in the flesh as the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. And thirdly, let's look at the main message, the gospel. I love this little section. He says, through whom, Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. Paul's talking about uh, his own journey with Christ, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Is that how you see yourself? Called of Jesus Christ. I love that. Called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at all the ways the Holy Spirit mentions the gospel in these three verses. In verse 5, he talks about the graciousness of God to send him as an apostle, a messenger to the Gentiles, one he willingly undertook, as, as we've seen, even to suffer for the sake of the name. Why? Well, for the sake of the gospel. To bring about the obedience of faith or salvation among the Gentiles. Why? For his name's sake. That's why Paul did it. For the sake of the name of God to glorify God. 
for the honor of his mighty name. This isn't about our salvation. This is about the one who saves us. It's not about the gift. It's about the giver of the gift. It's not about the one who gives salvation. It's, it, it is about the one who gives salvation. It's not about the one who gets it. Although I benefit from that. But it's all for the glory of God. It's all for his honor of his mighty name. As John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. The gospel restores men to worship. It restores men to worship God in spirit and truth, doesn't it? Which God seeks to be his worshipers. So why do we share the gospel? Why do we desire to see others come to Christ? Because it glorifies God. You know, John 15 says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's the point. We do it for the glory of God. We do it because God is honored through this. We don't do it to, well, look how many people I witnessed to. Look how many doors I knocked on and all that. We do it for the sake of the name. We do it for the glory of God. God is honored when we do these things. Now, there's something else here that I wanted to bring up. It's grace and service together. It's a phony or shallow faith that can accept the grace and mercy and love of God without the desire to serve and honor the one who has been so gracious to bestow it, who has given so much. You know, a serviceless life is really a thankless life, isn't it? I mean, at the heart, that's what it is. It's uh, gimme, 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 and I've got it, and uh, I'm happy. You know, I've got my fire insurance, I've got my ticket to heaven, and I'll just do whatever I want the rest of my life. If you're of that frame of mind, I would be very, very scared. Because that's not really what the Scripture teaches. Notice with Paul it was grace and apostleship. It's the gospel and the obedience of faith. James 2 says it rightly when he says that faith without works is a dead faith. Now don't get me wrong here. Not that we are saved by our good works but we are saved unto good works. You know, I love Ephesians 2. That's why I had it read where he says, you're saved by grace, it's not of works, it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. He said, and then he says, for we are his workmanship, literally, we are his masterpieces created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not saved by good works, but we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. And the real kicker is that God has prepared the good works already. All I've got to do is be willing to walk in them. That's where humility comes in, right? Will I do it God's way? Will I do what God wants me to do? Or will I just keep doing it my way and try and get everything I can? Or did God call me to give? Did he call me to give away my faith, to give away my service, to give away the gospel? Uh, can I take that without giving it? Hopefully not. So Paul further defines the gospel here. It's all of grace. And it's life transforming as to purpose and how we live in this world if our faith is real. It's the obedience of faith that he mentions. I love what Jesus said. He said in John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. Well, James says, show me your faith. Just show me your faith. 
But he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. You know, can you really show it any other way? You know, God saves us, then graciously allows us the privilege of serving him. Christ is both Savior and Lord of our lives. So Paul nails the gospel here. He says, true salvation brings about a transformed life. You don't transform your life and then think you're getting saved. You get saved by grace, by faith, as a gift of God, and then your life is transformed from that point on. Can we accept God's gifts without giving them away? Then he calls them the called of God. And we'll look at this in depth later in the book as Paul deals with uh, election, predestination, but just keep in mind that ultimately it's God who has called us unto salvation and that it was His determination overruling my sinful will. Then he calls them the beloved of God in Rome. What a wonderful way to address those who have, been, uh, who have believed the gospel, beloved. Love that term, beloved, beloved of the Lord. God loves you. He loves me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And he says, by grace you have been saved. Beloved of God. That's me. That's you. If you know Christ as your Savior, you're beloved. You're his beloved child heir of God, joint heir with Jesus Christ. Truly we are the beloved of God. Then he says, called as saints, hoi agioi, holy ones. And how are we made holy? Well, again, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I love Ephesians 1, 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us from before the foundation of the world. That's when the gospel was established. That we should be what? Holy and blameless. God sees us now as holy and blameless in Christ because Christ paid the penalty for our sin and we no longer bear it. And we're holy and blameless. You see, beloved, it's all about the gospel. Paul was one of God's main messengers in establishing and spreading the gospel along with the other apostles. And that early church, as they were scattered, and they went about preaching the word, it says, spreading the gospel. And that's uh, to be our main purpose, to spread the gospel. And Jesus Christ is the main man or person around whom the message of the gospel and the messengers rally. I use the term man because he came in the flesh, and what he did in the flesh declared with power that he was God in the flesh, okay? Don't get me wrong there either. Uh, his birth is prophesied in the Holy Scriptures. His death is foretold by the prophets and his resurrection, which declares him to be the Son of God with power. Power over sin, power over death, power over life itself. All of which results in the obedience of faith among us, the Gentiles, primarily. 
partial hardening has happened to Israel until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. But, but uh, that's brought about an obedience of faith among us who believe, who are then considered by God to be the called of Jesus Christ, the beloved of God, saints of the Most High. And that's the power of God unto salvation, isn't it? That he could transform a wretched sinner like me. Grace, grace, God's grace. <laughs> grace that is greater than all my sin. And Paul ends with a glorious doxology. He says, grace to you. And how do we get grace? By the gospel. By the grace of God. And how do we have peace from God? Well, first you've got to have peace with God. And that comes through the gospel, doesn't it? You make peace with God, therefore you have the peace of God. And he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd just like to challenge you as we close, have you made that peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Christ did it all on your behalf. Are you willing to receive the free gift of eternal life and allow him by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform your life and to go out and spread the good news of what's happened in your life with those who need it to happen in their life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is clear. Thank you that, that the gospel is such a profound, profound thing as presented in your word, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Thank you that it just over and over and over, we're going to hear that in Romans in so many different ways. And, and Lord, it's exciting just to think about. Lord, make us people of the gospel. Make us people who are sent to proclaim the gospel of God to a lost and dying world. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.